that there would be this tradition of lights. And so in the evening, they had this event where they would light the four massive, huge candelabra there in the temple, these, these huge torches there in the temple, and it would illuminate the temple, especially the outer courtyard. Some people would even bring their own torches. The ritual of the lights in the Feast of Tabernacles is still in the people's mind. It's still in their mind's eye because the, the, the feast has just finished. It's the day after the feast. And so that ritual of the lights of the Feast of Tabernacle reminded the people, it was designed to remind the people about God's provision for them in the wilderness. With this ritual fresh in the people's mind, Jesus comes in and says, not I am a light, but I am the light. The symbol of light for the Hebrew ear was rich with significance. It's a symbol that is pregnant with power. And this is what I want you to see this morning. We see light at the very beginning of the book. In Genesis 1, verse 3, then God said, light, and there it was. God said, light, and there was light. That's power. He spoke it into existence. Right? Go home and say, Ferrari. <laughs> Ferrari. You're going to look like the village idiot. Because we don't have anywhere close to the power of God. God speaks light into existence with his word. The symbol of light in the scripture is pregnant with power. Then there's the Exodus 3 event, which I referred to earlier. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus 3. Exodus 3, verse 1. This is where Moses meets God. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Jump to verse 2. The angel of the Lord, this is the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of Yahweh, the pre-incarnate Christ, appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. How does that work? How does a bush burn, and yet it doesn't burn up? How does the flame, how does that work from a, from a physics standpoint, right? The flame is burning in the bush, but the bush is not consumed. I don't know how that works, but I do know this. He is God, and I am not. That's how it works. And so God presents himself to Moses in the burning bush. Here, fire and light are associated with the pre-incarnate Christ. The Lord speaks through the light. He speaks to Moses through the light, through this unquenchable fire. Keep reading in verse 3. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When Yahweh saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he, 
Yahweh said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The power of the presence of God is always overwhelming. Always overwhelming. Look at Moses' response. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Fire, or light, symbolizes God's holiness with its purity and with its brilliance. And it symbolizes the power of God's presence. The Israelites in the wilderness saw the power of God's light. Thumb over to Exodus 13. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. Here we see God's light presented not just to Moses, but to the entire nation. Yahweh was going before them, before the the nation of Israel, before the Exodus generation. Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in in, in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The pillar was God's special presence, what the Hebrews refer to as the Shekinah. The Shekinah means in Hebrew, that which dwells. So the pillar, or you can translate the Hebrew word for pillar, the column, the column of cloud or the column of fire represented God's special presence presence among the Israelites in the wilderness through the light of the Shekinah, through the pillar, God did two things. What we're going to see in an Exodus passage in a moment is the two things that God does through the light, through the column. Two opposite things. Two things that conflict with one another seemingly. They seem to conflict, but for God they don't. The two things that God will do through the light, through the column, is he will deliver and he will destroy. He will deliver his people and he will damn his enemies. He will do both through the column, through his special presence of light among the Israelites. Please turn to Exodus 14. Exodus 14, verse 19. The context here is that Pharaoh has let the Israelites go. He's let his workforce of two million slaves go, and now he's had a change of mind. Now he's not happy that he let them go. And so he sends out his army to kill them. And I want you to see what the light does, what God's light, God's column of light does. Look at verse 19. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. So first he's before them. Now he's in their flank, at their flank. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Verse 20, so it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Let me explain what's happening here. This is nighttime. This is the evening. It's darkness outside. And so 
the pillar is shining the way forward for God's people, for the Israelites, and at the same time, the pillar is darkening the way for God's enemies, for the enemies of Israel, for the Egyptian army, so they can't find the camp of the Israelites. Keep reading in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, Yahweh looked down on the army of the Egyptians from where? Through where? Through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. A moment ago, we saw God's light through the pillar darken the way of the Egyptians so they couldn't find the Israelite camp in the evening. But now we're seeing God's light do something different. Now God's light is going further, and it's affirmatively judging the Egyptians by creating confusion in their minds. As we saw at the 930 We underestimate God every single day. We underestimate God's discipline, for example. We underestimate God's judgment. God doesn't judge merely physically in the physical realm. He also judges in the metaphysical realm. The reason our nation has this crisis of mental health is because we are being judged by God. Because God's judgment extends beyond what we can see and touch and feel. It even extends, extends into our minds. We're seeing this here with the Egyptians. Because the light, God's light, through the pillar, he judges them through the pillar of cloud and fire. And the method of judgment is confusion in their heads. We underestimate God's judgment. Look at verse 25. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. Jump to verse 26. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. While the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, then Yahweh overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. Verse 29. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Can I summarize what happened? They make the crossing at night. They cross through the Red Sea in the darkness. But the column of fire, God's light leads them. It delivers them. It directs them to the way of salvation, deliverance. Because behind them are the Egyptian chariots the most powerful army in the known world. They've got to go that way. They've got to to cross the sea 
and it's the evening. So what God's light does is it delivers them to the place of peace and safety. And at the same time, God's light destroys his enemies. Because through the pillar, through the column, God doesn't just deliver the Israelites, but he destroys the enemies of Israel. He destroys God's enemies, his own enemies. He destroys the Egyptians. The point is God's light delivers his children, and at the same time, simultaneously, it damns his enemies. One more passage about God's light. One more Old Testament passage. Please turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3. It's the the fifth to the last book in the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 3. And in that chapter, just as you you turn there, we're going to break into the prophet's prayer, the prophet Habakkuk's prayer before God. That's really what the whole book of Habakkuk is. It's a prayer from the prophet before his God. And in Habakkuk chapter 3, The prophet will refer to God as a warrior, as a warrior of light who uses weapons of light. And he does this to save his own and to destroy his enemies. Light. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. Habakkuk says this, Yahweh, I have heard the report about you and I fear The fear of God is the only proper response to the revelation of God. Let me say that again. Fearing God is the only proper response to the revelation of God. When God reveals himself through the text, for example, the only proper response from you is abject awe and wonder. That's what fear of God means in the scripture. It doesn't mean cowering in the corner. It means approaching God with your mouth wide open. It means reverential awe. That is the only proper response to the revelation of God, and the prophet knows it. And so he says, Yahweh, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Yahweh, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God is merciful to his own and wrathful towards his enemies. Look at verse 3. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. We don't know exactly what Selah means. We believe it's a, it's a musical notation. It's probably a notation of pause. So you can think about it for a minute. So you can pause and meditate on it. God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Think about it. Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. The prophet portrays Yahweh as a divine warrior who was characterized by light and his light bursts forth from his fists. This is the picture that Habakkuk gives us. His power is so immense that he conceals it. He hides it. 
for a season, temporarily. Keep reading in verse 5. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. Jump to verse 10. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its verse, its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. Here we see the warrior's weapons of light, arrows of light, a spear of light, and the great lights of the heavens cannot remain in his presence. They flee away in, his, in the presence of his light. No one and no thing can oppose the power of God's light. Look at verse 12. In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Think about it. Selah. This prophet fearfully describes God as a warrior of light, with weapons of light, weapons of light that disembowel his enemies, that cut the enemy from the groin to the throat and expose him as the ancient way of executing an enemy where he is drawn and quartered. This is the light of God. You say, no, God is sweet. God is squishy. To be sure, God is merciful. God is loving. God is gracious. No question. But he is also a God of wrath and judgment and righteousness. Both. We cannot worship a God of our own imagination. And here, the prophet Habakkuk describes fearfully the God who is he describes him as the divine warrior, a warrior of light with weapons of light. And that light does two things you see here in the text of Habakkuk 3. It saves his, his, his people, his own. Right? You see the word salvation used there twice in verse 12. It saves his own and it destroys his enemies. Destruction of his enemies through the light. This is the light that Jesus claims to be. This is the light, the power of the light of God that Jesus claims for himself. I say again, we underestimate God. We underestimate Jesus, and we do so because we think we are his equal. We don't know our place. We don't know our place. In our passage, John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. These are words of salvation and damnation. Both are found in this text. Salvation for the one who follows him and damnation for the one who walks in the darkness, who remains in the darkness where light symbolizes God, 
Darkness symbolizes evil. John 3.19, Jesus said this, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. The world is cloaked in darkness, even though it's a beautiful sunny day today. The world is cloaked in darkness. It's gripped in darkness by the evil one. The evil one disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, 14. The devil deceives the unbelieving world into the darkness to keep them in the darkness. We're all born in darkness. The adorable baby that comes home from the hospital, cute as can be, with that cute little hat that has the curls on it, or the, the stripes, you know, the, the, we are girls, so the, you know, the pink and the, and, the, and the pretty stripes. Born in darkness. All of us were born in darkness, into the darkness of the devil's world, the devil's world system. Remember Jesus described the devil as the ruler of this world, little r, not capital R. God's the ruler of the universe. But when Adam sinned, he handed over rulership to the devil. And so the devil's world system is a system that is characterized by darkness. Darkness is another way of saying evil, sin, ignorance. Ignorance of God is no excuse. No excuse. Unbelief is always a moral decision because God reveals himself to everyone, even the guy who lives in the bush. God reveals himself through his light, because the light reveals. And so, there is general revelation to everybody through creation, through our conscience. Paul says, we all have a conscience, and God reveals himself through our conscience, Romans 1. And through creation, you look up at the heavens, and you see the magnitude of the heavens. You see the beautiful stars in Fredericksburg, Texas, and you say, that must be an accident. That is a moral decision that you just made. No, you look at that and you say, God, if you're up there, I want to know you. Unbelief is a moral decision because God has revealed himself. The devil deceives the unbelieving world into the darkness. 2 Corinthians 4 Verse 3 says this, and even if our gospel, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose God, in whose case the God of this world, that's a reference to the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The contrast could not be more clear. The devil is the author of darkness and sin, and evil, and death, where Christ is the author, capital A, of light and life. The one who follows, to use Jesus' word in our verse, the one who follows Jesus receives the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. As such, he illuminates illuminates the way of deliverance by exposing our sin problem, and by revealing the sin solution to lead us 
to salvation. Following Jesus means believing in him. Following Jesus means trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. It means believing the gospel. The word gospel has taken on different meanings in our culture. The word gospel from the text is the Greek word oangelizo. Well, that's, that's the verb, to bring good news. Oangelion is the noun, gospel. It means good news. And so the light following Jesus is following the light. Following Jesus is receiving the light of the world. Following him is responding positively to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A question was raised recently about the content of the gospel and what must be understood in order to be saved. Let me respond to that question. The gospel is not a particular formula. It's not a particular formula of words. Of course, we need to be precise in the words that we use with respect to the gospel. We need to be precise with the words that we use with respect to God. Don't approach God sloppy. Don't approach the God of the universe who is a God of extreme precision and extreme order. Don't approach him with your words in a sloppy fashion or when you serve in a sloppy way. You go to God with your best. And so when you speak of God to someone, when you tell them about Jesus, that God became a man to die for their sins, oh, you go to God and you ask him to give you the words, words of precision. So absolutely, you are to use precision Words of precision when you speak the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. But there's not only one formula. I use the phrase a lot, you must trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. But there are many ways to say it. There are many ways to say the good news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of the phrase that I use, you could say, trust in Christ for your access to heaven. Trust Christ to make you right with God. Well, that's the same thing as trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, right? Access to heaven is eternal life. Right with God is forgiveness of your sins. Or you can say, trust Christ to save you from hell and to cleanse you from sin. You know, some churches, churches don't talk about sin. They don't. We don't talk about that in our church. Well, what do you talk about? You just talk about kind of kind of fluffy stuff, and, and, and your prayer is just like a nursery rhyme, and it's just, just fluffy marketing stuff. This book is about redemption of sin, salvation of sin. And the light either delivers us from sin or damns us in our sin, judges us, condemns us, destroys us because of our sin. So sin's a big deal. We're saved from it by the light if we will, will accept the light, if we will follow Jesus to use his, his word, his verb in verse 12. But if we don't, then we're destroyed by the light because of our sin, because our sin is not forgiven. And so you could use the phrase in the gospel presentation, trust Christ 
from hell and trust Christ, to save you from hell, I mean, and trust Christ to cleanse you from your sin. That's the same way as saying, trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. Or you could say that God became a man to pay for your sins. That's a good presentation of the gospel. I mean, you might need a little more than that, but that's, a, that's, a, that's the core of it. Or you could recite John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel right there. Is that different than the phrase that I use? Believe in, uh, trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life? Yes, those are different words, but it's the same point. It's the same message. It's the same good news. Or if you prefer, you can use Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and was raised raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You could use Paul and Silas' words to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. When the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? So he must have already known something about salvation and God. They give a very short response. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That was their response. He must have, the, the, the jailer must have already known something about Jesus, must have known these men that, are, that, that I'm guarding here in this jail They've been speaking of Jesus. They've been speaking of Jesus' works. Work. That's why he, Paul and the other people are in jail here. So there was probably some more context than Paul didn't just say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, who, who is Jesus? The jailer probably had already some context. What you think about Jesus matters. What you believe about Jesus matters matters. If you trust in a Jesus who was merely a good man, but not God, then you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, and you are still speeding on the death train to spend eternity in the lake of fire, because you have believed in a fictitious Jesus, a fictional Jesus, a Jesus who is not If you believe in a Jesus who was a heavenly being, but not God, as the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses would tell you, then you are going to hell. Because that is a Jesus who is not. That's a fictitious Jesus. If you believe in a Jesus who died and his body decayed, and is now dust to the four winds, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. If you have trusted in a Jesus like that, then you're still going to hell, because that is not the Jesus who is. If you trusted in a Jesus who is merely a man, or is merely some heavenly being, or was never resurrected, then you have trusted in a Jesus who is a liar and a fraud. Because Jesus said, I'm God. And Jesus prophesied that he would be resurrected. And then he presented himself in a resurrection body to the disciples. And then they approached him like that. Because the man that they had seen crucified on Friday, they actually touched his flesh on Sunday. And he talked to them. And he ate with them. You can present the gospel all kinds of different ways. But the core of the gospel 
The core of the gospel is that Jesus has died for our sins, that Jesus is God in the flesh, and that Jesus is raised from the dead. That's the core of the gospel. And the reason the resurrection is part of the good news message is because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then it's all a joke. His statement that I am the light of the world, that's a joke, and he's a joke, and we should make fun of him like the rest. But on the other hand, if in fact he was raised from the dead, and if in fact he is the light of the world, the light of God incarnate that delivers us to the way of salvation and peace, just like the Israelites through the Red Sea, and that damns and destroys those who refuse to accept his forgiveness of sins, if in fact that is who he is, then your only proper response is faith, is to trust him. It is reverential awe. I have heard the report of you, and I fear to use Habakkuk's word. So, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a particular formula of words. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a core message, and you can use all kinds of words to present it. Your words need to be precise. Your words need to be based on the Scripture, and your words need to present the fact that Jesus paid for our sins and that Jesus is the only access to God. Now, when you believe... When, you, when you're trusting Christ, that first instance of trusting in Christ, you may not understand all the particulars of salvation, like the details of eternal life or the intricacies of divine forgiveness. But you must believe that he is the Jesus who he said he was, the Jesus who is God incarnate, the Jesus who is the only access to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. You must believe in that Jesus. And then as you study the Word, you'll learn more of the intricacies and the breadth and the scope of that forgiveness that He gives you. And you'll learn more of the details of the eternal life that you receive in salvation. Here's the point. The point of our passage is this. Jesus is the light of the world. This light brings sweet, sweet salvation to those who follow it, and it brings terrifying judgment who those, for those who walk in the darkness, who remain in the darkness. Darkness is a symbol of evil. Darkness is a symbol of rejection of God. Those who reject God and his Christ are subject to the judgment of the light. This is what we are seeing here in this passage, and you see how it fits perfectly with the events of the woman caught in adultery, because there at the beginning of the chapter in John chapter 8, it says at the very beginning in John chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, then verse 2, early in the morning he came again into the temple. It's still morning time. Early in the morning, as we saw last time, is the Greek word for the dawn. 
It's dawn when the events of the woman caught in, in adultery happen. And then Jesus has this conversation with, with, with those who, who accused her. They leave. He speaks to her. She leaves. But it's still the early morning hours. And so you can see it in your mind's eye, right? The sun is rising from the east. And the rays are starting to, the, the, the sun's rays are starting to, to hit the group that is there in the temple courtyard because Jesus was teaching the people. He was teaching the people when the Pharisees so rudely interrupted and dragged this woman before them. They leave. There's still some Pharisees around. And, and the Pharisees, and Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he says, I am the light of the world. And you can just see the, 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 the rays of the sun coming in to illuminate the temple as these words come forth from Jesus' mouth. This is the Jesus of the Bible. A Jesus who is full of love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness for his enemies, for those who are sinners by nature, which is all of us, for those who are born in darkness, which is all of us. And it is only by his great mercy that we are saved. Those who refuse to accept his salvation remain in darkness and come under his judgment, the judgment of the light. If you are here today and you have not trusted in Christ, if you are here today and you have not trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, you are going to hell. I love you too much to lie to you, to soft-sell it. You are going to hell, and you will spend eternity in the lake of fire, in the place that Jesus described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. You will not hear this presentation in many churches because they do not love, the pastor does not love the people enough to be honest. And people don't like this. It's controversial. Jesus is controversial. The Jesus of the Bible is controversial. You say, I'm not going to believe in a God like that. I'm not going to believe in a God who will cast people into hell. You will. You will. And I say that not because I'm trying to be rude. I say that because he is. He is the living God. And no one and nothing can stop him. You underestimate him, and you do so at your great peril. Come to him. Come to Jesus. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. All you have to do is trust in him. Trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. And in that instant, you stop being his enemy. You stop being under his damnation, and you become his child. Accept the way of deliverance that is given to you, that is offered to you through the light of the world, through Jesus the Christ. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We praise you for what you have done through Christ, for what you are doing, and for what you will do. We ask that you help us, help us obey you, help us worship you, help us honor you, help us return to you, break us of our rebellion, challenge us to submit to you, we ask that Jesus come soon. 
to undo the wickedness of this world. We ask that he come soon to bring the kingdom of heaven to this planet. We ask that he come soon to rapture his church and to reward us for obedience to Kim. We thank you that you sent Kim to die for our sins. We praise you for that. We ask that you help us not get bored with that and not become accustomed to it. Help us fear you. Help us approach you in awe and wonder and reverence. And when we don't, we ask that you draw us back to you either by the carrot or the stick. We prefer the carrot, but either way, Father. We pray all these things in the name of his majesty, the King of the kings, Jesus Christ.